Well, thanks, Walt and Jordan and team, for rehearsing with us the gospel again. I never get sick of that. Do you? I mean, my goodness. We've just been singing, what a Savior, right? His, his love has rescued us. If we, if we just really think about that, recognize we need to come here on Sunday morning and get reoriented, at least I do, because I can tend to drift from being a gospel-centered person that recognized that once I was lost, rebelling God, and he reached down and he grabbed me out of that, and he put me over here with Christ. And now when he looks at me because of my faith in Christ, he sees righteousness. I've been rescued I don't no, no longer bear the, pow, the penalty for my sin. And by degrees, by his grace, I'm being freed from the power of my sin as I trust in him. If you're like me, you need to come here on Sunday mornings and get reoriented because we can tend to be led astray. We can tend to drift. When I'm here singing these songs, I recognize that there's nothing that I can bring before God that would ever earn his favor. But when I go about my work week, I can work as though some, I have something to offer God that would earn his favor. I begin to place my identity in what I do as a person, maybe in some of the ways that I minister to people, in the way I open and understand and interpret the word. I begin to place my identity in things that I do, things that I might have to contribute rather than in Christ. And the Bible is clear that our identity alone, if for Christians, is in Christ. That's our only hope of pleasing God, is through faith in Christ. So I need to come here on Sunday mornings and sing songs about the gospel. I need the New City Catechism to help reorient my thinking to remind me that I'm just a sinner saved by grace and now by God's grace I stand righteous before him and he empowers me for life and ministry in a way that can honor him, in a way that can glorify him. I'm prone to wander from that and it's good to come back. Are you prone to wander from that too? Do you know what it's like to feel like you've been led astray? Sometimes we lead ourselves astray with our own thinking. Sometimes other people are involved and we know that we don't live in a vacuum, right? We're actually born astray and we need to be brought back by God's grace. We're born astray and there's an enemy who wants even, he does not want us to be brought back to Christ But once we are in Christ, he will do whatever he can to lead us astray again and to get us thinking incorrect things about God. We know what it's like to feel like we're being led astray. And our culture is masterful at being part of what the enemy uses to lead us astray. Think about the American culture recently. There's a couple of things in our culture that are ruling the day here. One of them is gender identification, right? We have people now that say that that you get to identify your gender. It's not something that God has given you when he knit you together in your mother's womb. I'm actually told that there's a student at Fullerton High School, the high school that my youngest son goes to, that the teachers have been instructed, don't call that person a he or a she because they haven't decided yet what gender they are. 
That's our culture. And last month, our Supreme Court decided that they get to redefine marriage. Maybe you know these, this sort of tendency to drift, to sway, to, to be persuaded against what God has said and to be led astray, if you will, in your thinking or led astray in your practice. You know, we're tempted to do that because we, many of us know these struggles inside. We might know the struggle of same-sex attraction. We might know the struggle or know somebody who is in a relationship with someone of the same sex and they're calling it a committed marriage. But it's not. But because we know them and because we love them, it doesn't feel very nice to, to speak to them that what they're actually involved in is sin. It doesn't feel nice, it doesn't feel loving. And so we might be tempted to be led astray in our thinking because of our experience on this earth, because of our relationships that we're involved in. We know what it's like to be pulled away from right thinking and from right practice. And that's what today's passage is talking about. In Mark chapter 12, turn with me there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 12. And if you need a Bible, just put your hand in the air. We, we have ushers that will be glad to bring one to you. If you just want it for the day, that's fine. If you want to take it home, we'd be glad to, to put that in your hands and leave that to you. But please, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We'll begin reading at verse 18. Last week, Jackson showed us how the Pharisees and the Herodians were, were teaming up together in, uh, with a perfect question, trying to stump Jesus and thereby erode his credibility and his popularity with the people there in the temple. But now in Mark 12, beginning at verse 18, 18 through 27, we have another member of the Sanhedrin. These are the Sadducees who come up and take their turn at at this game of trying to discredit Jesus. They're, they're living in an honor and a shame culture and one of the ways that they seek to, to uh, destroy Jesus is by causing him to lose face in the sight of the people. So they come up with these crazy scenarios or these crazy questions to try to get him to stumble in his speech or in his teaching, to try to discredit what he believes because the whole crowd, when they listen to him, they marvel at his teaching and they recognize that he has some authority that these scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees just don't have. So these all see Jesus as a threat and they have determined, Mark has showed us that earlier, they've determined they're gonna destroy him. So now it's the Sadducees' turn and they come to Jesus with these questions. Before, before we read this, I'd like to pause and I'd like to pray because we need the Spirit of God to give us insight into the Word of God that we might be properly instructed today. Heavenly Father, we humbly bow before you and we continue to worship you and praise you for you are a good God, you are a wise God, you have not withheld any good thing from us, you've given us your, your precious Son and through his perfect atoning blood have made atonement for our sins. And those of us who trust Christ by faith stand in the power of Christ and we praise you for that. And now we turn to your word, Lord, and we recognize that in our humanity we can't understand it, but thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've also given to us and we rely on you, Spirit, now to be present with us in a powerful way, to give us ears to hear, 
that we might understand what you have to teach us today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Reading from Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now it's Jesus' words in response to this crazy scenario that the Sadducees come before him in order to stump him, in order to discredit him, It's Jesus' words in verse 24 that are the center point of today's teaching. Verse 24, Jesus says, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Now this word translated in the ESV as wrong, is this not the reason you are wrong, is the same word that Jesus used when he talks about a sheep that has wandered off from the fold. We might also translate this, Is this not the reason that you have been led astray or that you are going astray? Is this not the reason that you are wandering? You've been deceived? And then he tells them two reasons why they are wrong, why they have wandered. One is they don't know the scriptures, and two is they don't know the power of God. And this is the point that Jesus spoke into the Sadducees in order to correct them, and I'm wondering if this is not the same word that we here at Grace EV Free, Christ in Christ even need to hear these words today. These might need to be the words of instruction for us as well. So in the midst of a culture and in the midst of a a personal tendency to go astray, right? We've talked about how it's so easy to put our identity in other things and to go astray rather than being Christ-centered. How can we avoid being led astray? How is it that we can stay the course There are two things that Jesus teaches us through here. We must understand the scriptures and we must understand the power of God if we are going to be able to stay the course. So let's look at the first point. In order to stay the course, we must understand the scriptures. Now to avoid being led astray, we must not only know the content of scripture, but we must understand its meaning. And when we turn to the scriptures, any given passage, and we seek to understand its meaning, we need to understand who is writing, and we need to understand to whom it is that he's writing or speaking. In other words, we're seeking the author's intent. So in today's passage, Mark is the author, he's the evangelist who is assembling these things, these sayings that Jesus did, and these experiences that he had. 
And Jesus is the one here, particularly in verse 24, who is speaking these words of correction, and he is speaking to the Sadducees. So if we are going to properly understand and know this scripture, we will need to properly understand who it is that's speaking. We want to know Jesus, who he is, and we want to understand who the Sadducees are, and we want to seek to understand something of the subject that is being addressed here. So who is Jesus? Mark has revealed to us earlier in the Gospel of Mark that the demons have identified Jesus as the Holy One of God or the Son of God. So they, whenever Jesus comes on the scene, they bow down and they just can't help but blurting out, we know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God. Jesus himself has declared that he is the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. And Peter, just in in chapter eight, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus did not deny that. So Jesus is the Son of God whom was sent by the Father, who is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would come and deliver his people from their sins. That's who is speaking in this. This is Jesus. Now, who is the audience that Jesus is speaking to? He's speaking to a group identified as the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were primarily of wealthy priestly families in Jerusalem. They're like aristocrats. They're the high society folks, the ones who have money and the ones who have power, the ones who have position. The high priest, Caiaphas, is a Sadducee. So when Jesus, just the day before, came into Jerusalem, entered the temple, and began to disrupt the temple proceedings by throwing over the tables and and disrupting the money changers, what he was doing was interrupting the enterprise of the Sadducees. These are people of position, of wealth, and of power. And now these Sadducees are teaming up together with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians. All of them are trying to work together to destroy Jesus. So what do these Sadducees believe? Who are these people? What are they believing? Well, Mark is clear to tell us here in verse 18, and the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees do not believe that there is a thing called a resurrection. They are very, however, conservative. They consider themselves experts in the law, and they they hold to a very literal Uh, interpretation of the law, and they are self-righteous, if you will, in the way they seek to live out the law and in the way they seek to to teach it and model it and demand that other people who they are teaching hold to it as well. The Sadducees held exclusively to the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They hold to those, and they only recognize the authority of those. So though at this time that Jesus is speaking, there are other writings from the prophets and other writings that the rest of the community is recognizing as authoritative, and rightly so. They're still in our Bible today. They are considered the inspired writings, inspired by God himself. The Sadducees refused to recognize the authority of the other scriptures, so their canon of scripture, if you will, contains five books, all of which were written by Moses. Therefore, 
they don't believe in the resurrection because the resurrection is not explicitly taught in the books of Moses. So what's this thing that's the subject at hand? These Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection come to Jesus with a crazy scenario of one woman having seven husbands. What is that? It's actually a thing called leveret marriage. It's based on the, the uh, Latin word lever, which means brother-in-law, and it's, it's actually a com- thing that God has commanded through Moses, and we can turn to Deuteronomy 25 and, and get a taste of what God has commanded here. So turn with me to Deuteronomy, near the front of your Bibles. We'll look at chapter 25. There's two verses that we want to read together. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 and 6. And if your Bible is like mine, it has a heading over verse 5 that says, Laws Concerning Leveret Marriage. Moses writes, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall be married, I'm sorry, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So the idea here is for the name of the deceased to not be blotted out, to remain, to have some heirs to it so that it it continues on in Israel. And it's actually a thing that we see in the Old Testament tried to be incorporated a couple of times even in the lineage of Jesus. If you look at Genesis chapter 38, and I I would counsel you to do that later today or when you have a a moment later this week, look at Genesis 38. We see uh, that beginning to be acted out there through Judah and his descendants. His son Ur had a, a wife named Tamar. Ur was an evil man, so the Lord struck him killed him, and Judah's counsel, according to this law of leveret marriage, to his other son, Onan, was to take Tamar as his wife. Well, it gets messy from there. I'll let you read that and understand that. And then further down the line, read the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters long. It won't take you long to read it. But when you read the book of Ruth, you see that this widow, Naomi, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, return from Moab, and they they end up gleaning in the fields. Ruth ends up gleaning in the fields of a man named Boaz. Turns out that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, one who is next of kin for Naomi, and he is asked if he would redeem this, redeem this land, and then get as part of that, through leveret marriage, Ruth as a wife. Boaz says, well, there's somebody that's a nearer relative than I am. Let's talk to him first. So in chapter 4, they bring that relative in at the gate of the city, and they discuss it. And that relative refuses to obey the law of leveret marriage and says, no, I, I won't do that. You redeem her yourself. So Boaz does redeem her, takes Ruth as his wife, and they give birth to a man named Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of King David. So leveret marriage is actually in 
the lineage of Jesus. So this is a, a little bit of the background that we want to get in, the, in our minds as we turn back to Mark chapter 12 and seek to understand this passage. Let's read again from verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. So bear in mind, they don't believe in a resurrection even though the scenario they're putting together here includes a question about the resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Do you hear the disdain in their voice? Do you hear their sarcasm? They don't believe in a resurrection. They have no interest in hearing Jesus' answer to whose wife she will be. What they want to do is they, they take and they come up with this scenario that's so absurd that they, they presume that this will discredit the idea, the doctrine of a resurrection. And they think that so doing, they will discredit Jesus' teaching and cause the crowds to turn away from him, be part of his destruction that they've planned for him. But Jesus turns to them and says these words in verse 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong? You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You are wrong about the reality of the resurrection. The premise of this scenario is all wrong. You have been led astray. You've only recognized the writings of Moses as authoritative, and in so doing, you have willfully ignored significant portions of my revelation. I love you, and I've been revealing myself to you but you ignore me. You should have also recognized the prophets and the writings, for they are also inspired. In them I have revealed to you the truth of the resurrection. Listen with me to Daniel chapter 12, verses one through three. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God has been revealing himself, yes, through Moses, yes, through the prophets, yes, through the writings. And if they had held to a canon that was larger than the writings of Moses, they would have been able to know these scriptures and to realize that God has revealed the truth of a resurrection. They are wrong because they have shrunk the size of the canon from what it was truly as the inspired writings of God only to recognizing the five books of Moses and in so doing they don't know the scriptures they don't recognize it when it's before them but Jesus compassionately meets them on their turf and he makes reference to a scripture passage that they were quite familiar with 
Look at what Jesus says to them in beginning at verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus moves into them, moves toward them on their turf. He meets them by quoting a passage that they do recognize as authoritative. And he shows them that even the passages that they had been reading, even the passages that they did hold as authoritative, even the passages that they knew very well, they still didn't know. They did not know completely. They did not understand them. For even Moses reveals to them that there is a reality of a resurrection. In Matthew's account of this, Jesus says this. He says, have you not read what what God said to you? And then he quotes Exodus 3. So these, these writings of Moses have been recorded and preserved and and. Jesus says, God is saying to you as you read them now, have you not read what was said to you by God? As he quotes Moses from Exodus. They've read them, but they don't know them. They know them. They're familiar with them. They know this passage that Jesus is talking about, about the bush, but they don't understand them. They are ignorant of these scriptures. If they had understood them, they would remember that Jesus is a covenant-keeping God and that he is keeping the oath that he swore to the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I think we all know what it's like to be in a room with somebody who's a bit distracted. Maybe uh, you're a parent and you're talking to a child this way or maybe you're a friend talking to another friend and one of you happens to be distracted, let's say, with something like a telephone Uh, cell phone, maybe Facebook is involved, whatever the case might be, and you're communicating with that person and you're you're hearing back, "Uh uh-huh, yes, yep, right? But when you ask the question, you're met with a blank stare because they've been distracted with something else. They've been hearing that you're talking, but they haven't really listened to you. They recognize that you've been talking and they've been interacting with you a bit, but they just don't really understand what it is that you've been saying because they haven't paid closely attention. This is a bit of what is going on here. The Sadducees knew the Scriptures. They considered themselves experts in the law, and yet they didn't know the Scriptures. Jesus says, you don't know the Scriptures. In order to stay the course, we too must understand the Scriptures. How often are we, like the Sadducees, ignorant of the Scriptures? Though we have several copies of them in our homes, they remain closed, gathering dust, rather than open, so that we regularly expose ourselves to the truths of God's Word. Are there certain writings that you just tend to avoid because you you don't understand them? So you, you remain willfully ignorant of them because you're not willing to put in the hard work of allowing the word of God to rightly divide you. I wonder how much of our tendency to be led astray is because we, like the Sadducees, are in some way, some level, ignorant of the scriptures. We know them, but we don't really know them. 
A couple of weeks ago when I started reading and meditating and praying about this passage, I became convicted because in my devotional reading, I, I had drifted to this thing where I would just read familiar passages that I knew were going to minister to me at the expense of other passages. And the Lord convicted me that I don't need to be ignorant of the scriptures. I need to be systematic about working my way through them so I got myself back on another reading plan that determines for me what I shall read so that I can become aware of and understand the whole counsel of God rather than just the passages that I think minister to me, that I think are particularly applicable to me. So I wonder that. If we are to stay the course, we must understand the Scriptures. And the Sadducees, because they didn't understand the Scriptures, they did not comprehend the power of God. Moses' writings are vastly about human responsibilities in this relationship with God under the old covenant. But Jesus here is ushering in a new covenant. It's a covenant in which righteousness is imputed on the basis of faith. Apart from faith, there's no real way to truly understand the power of God. So the second point, in order for us to stay the course, we must understand the power of God. To avoid being led astray, we must trust that God exists and that he's capable of doing things that our finite minds just can't comprehend. Jesus rebukes them and he says, you are wrong because you don't know the power of God. He says that in verse 24. Now the Sadducees were powerful people. They were people of power and position. They knew how to maintain and exert and exploit their power. That's what they were doing in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, as they conducted the business of their enterprise, getting themselves rich by taking advantage of worshipers who would come there and purchase their wares, purchase those animals and exchange their money as part of the worship. The very thing that their religious activity was designed to stem from, faith, was missing. Theirs was empty religiosity. It had a form, but it was faithless. It was empty. It was void. They viewed the worship of God as a means to an end rather than the end in itself. And they were led astray in their thinking and in their practice because they did not know the power of God. They did not offer these things in faith. Therefore, they limited the scope of the Scripture, put God in a box that only contained the five books of Moses, and they could not comprehend an idea of a thing called a resurrection. They didn't have a category for that. They believed that the earthly life was about the best that it would get which is why their question is the way it is. They presume that marriage here on this earth is as good as it's going to get, so in the resurrection, if there is one, it must have marriage in it. But Jesus speaks to that. Their ignorance of the scriptures has not only misled them to disbelieve the reality of the resurrection, it has misled them to to misbelieve or misunderstand the nature of the resurrection. Look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus is saying that in the resurrection, there isn't a thing called marriage. 
this close, intimate relationship between a husband and a wife here on this earth that is God's building block for the family, the basis for, for society, this thing that's so important, this thing that our culture is tempting to cause us to, to be led astray of and redefine, this thing that is so important here on this earth, this thing that, that God in Ephesians tells us is actually a picture or a parable, if you will, of the relationship between Jesus and his church, this thing called marriage as we know it on earth doesn't exist in heaven. That can be a hard thing to receive, can't it? If you're like me and you're married and you love being married and much of your joy and much of your, your um, enjoyment of earthly life comes in relationship with your spouse, I don't love this idea. But I don't love it because I don't really understand it. But I hold to it because God has said it's so. And God always brings things about that are good. I can stay the course and hold to this idea of a resurrection that doesn't include marriage and believe that it's God's best for us because I believe God exists and I believe that what he says is right. I don't have to fully understand it with my finite mind. We can stay the course if we understand the scriptures. We can stay the course and hold to these doctrines if we understand the power of God. So in order to stay the course, we must understand the power of God. So think about your life. Where is it that you're tempted to be wandering, tempted to be led astray, either by your own desires, by the the voice of culture? Is your view of God's good design for human sexuality in the bounds of marriage as the only context in which it can be faithfully expressed? Is that where you're tempted to wander? Is that where you're tempted to be led astray? Are you tempted to be led astray in your personal definition of marriage? Are you tempted to be led astray in your understanding of gender identification and the nature of same-sex attraction? Tempted to side with our culture in celebrating it as just part of how God has made you? That's just who I am. God made me this way. He doesn't make mistakes. So if I'm a man that is attracted to men, you're just going to have to live with it. Or are you able to look at that and recognize that what the scripture teaches is that that is sin, just like pride, just like idolatry of any, any form? Are you tempted to wander off, to be led astray in thinking of yourself more highly than you ought? The Bible calls that pride. Are you tempted to wander off or be led astray in thinking that God doesn't love you? That too is a sin because it's believing something false about God. God does love you. He's proved it. He's demonstrated it. He's not withheld anything from you. He's given the Lord Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sin. If you doubt God's love for you, look at the cross. Are you tempted to believe that he could never forgive you for that sin that you walked in here struggling with this morning? Or are you tempted to believe that the people that you're sitting and worshiping with this morning or me or any of the other elders could never love you or accept you if we were to know the truth of the sin that you are struggling with? Are you tempted to believe those lies? Are you tempted to wander off or to be led astray in those ways? 
to what degree are your wanderings a direct result of not knowing the scriptures? Because if we know the scriptures, if we truly understand them, and if we know the power of God and truly understand the power of God, we would be able to recognize a lie when it's being offered to us. We'd be able to recognize that the Supreme Court can't redefine marriage. God created it. It's his. We recognize a lie when we believe that God can't love us or that we are unlovable to others. We'll recognize those things. And we can stand firm and not be led astray if we know and understand Scripture and if we know and understand the power of God. So for us, the question is this. Will we be led astray? Or will we stay the course that God has marked out for us? To stay the course, this brings up our third point, to stay the course, we must experience the power of God. We must know the scriptures, we must know the power of God, but additionally, we must experience the power of God. The only way to know the power of God is through faith. Listen to Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Do you hear how intimately involved the word of Christ the scriptures, the word of God, is with coming to faith. Faith is established by hearing the word. Similarly, faith is strengthened by hearing the word. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Romans 1, 8, 16, I'm sorry, 1, 16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, this is for everyone. The power of the gospel is for everyone to experience. Jesus came on the scene proclaiming, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Stop allowing your sin to own you. Stop allowing your sin to define you. you are, that is not your identity. But we're so prone to wander off, to be led astray, and to g- gain our identity from some of these other things, even sin. To gain our identity from what we sinfully do. That's not the truth. That's being led astray. But by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we can understand and experience the power of God. As he takes our sin from us and as he pays the penalty for it. And in exchange, he imputes to us his perfect righteousness. Furthermore, Jesus will break the power of your sin. When you trust Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone, That is your means of standing righteous before God. That is the power of the gospel being made manifest in you and through you. You're being delivered from the penalty of your sin and by degrees, by rehearsing the gospel, by reminding yourself of the gospel, by allowing the gospel and God's word to reorient you and to bring you back when you're prone to wander, by degrees you are being delivered from the power of sin in your life. This is something we must experience. 
If that is something outside of us, we have no reason to believe that we are saved. We have no reason to believe that we will enter into eternal bliss with Jesus Christ upon his return. But if you have come to a place where you have had the experience of personally trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, then the power of God rests upon you. Because at the moment of salvation, he brings and indwells you with his Holy Spirit. Before Jesus ascended, his final instructions to his apostles, to his disciples was, remain here. Power will come upon you when the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit is the power of God at work in us. And that is the gospel. If you're already in Christ, we need to experience the power of God to continue to sanctify us to face fearful circumstances with courage, to face grief with joy, to face suffering with patience, and to face temptation without falling into that familiar sin. So let's examine our lives here in the final minutes that we have together. Are we prone to wander? The power of God is present here for you. Have you been led astray by the influence of culture? The power of God is present here for you. Are you wandering because like the Sadducees, you don't know the scriptures in the way you ought? The power of God is here to help you understand them and know them. Are you wandering because you don't really intimately know the power of God? The power of God is present here for you. Do you need to experience forgiveness of your sin for the first time? Maybe this is new news to you today. And you can't say that I have experienced the power of God. Today would be the day to repent and to turn from your sin and to trust Christ by faith and receive forgiveness for your sins and the Holy Spirit who is the power of God. What is it that is tempting to pull you and cause you to drift, to make you stray? Spend some time in the presence of the Lord just asking Him what it is he wants you to learn today, how it is he wants you to be changed, where it is he wants you to experience the power of God in your life so that you can walk in increasing joy because of the newness of your life as he delivers you from the power and the penalty of sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that your power is present here this morning in in the person of the Holy Spirit. We worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit as the triune God, the one who has lovingly revealed himself to us and recorded and preserved those revelations for us in the scriptures, Lord. And, And we confess to you that we are at least in part ignorant of them. We don't know them as we ought. Would you strengthen us? Would you lead us into all the truth as we seek to expose ourselves to Scripture regularly and seek to truly understand it? We confess to you that we are at least in part ignorant of your power. Would you please, by your Spirit, show us your power. Uh, Remind us of the things that are true about you and the things that are true about us and cause us to rise up and walk in the newness of life. Lord, I don't know exactly what my brothers and sisters are struggling with here. Some may be here apart from faith, Lord. If that's the case, would you call them? Would you 
um, regenerate them? Would you send your spirit and open their eyes to see you as you truly are? And for those of us who are muddling our way along, seeking to be sanctified, would you empower that, Lord? Would you manifest your power in us and through us to the glory of your holy name? It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.